Hi, this is Samantha, and you're listening to the Layman's Doctor podcast, where we're bringing medicine home. And today we're having a conversation about COVID-19 and particularly talking about long COVID, which is something that if you haven't heard about it as yet, you're going to hear about it today. And it has been a, I don't want to call it a medical phenomenon, but um, it has been a process or a disease process that we have been hearing a lot about where persons, even after testing positive for COVID-19 and going through their quarantine period or their hospitalization period, are still experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 way after the active infection. And some of you listening now may actually be experiencing some of these symptoms. Today with me, I have Dr. Kimberly Johnson to talk about just COVID and non-COVID and, you know, some vaccination as well, popularly known as Dr. Kim on Twitter and to her patients as well. So I'm going to invite her to just tell us a little bit about herself before we start talking about COVID-19. Hi, everybody. As Samantha just said, I'm Dr. Kim, as most people affectionately know me by I don't get hung up on the formalities of Dr. Johnson. And I am a medical officer in pulmonology. And for those who don't know what that is, it is the medicine and the study of the lung. So by extrapolation, I've been living in people's lungs during the pandemic. I've been living, breathing COVID. I am a frenemy of COVID-19 since the start of even before our first case in 2020. And as she said, um, long COVID is something that we don't really talk about a lot. Um, We talk about the active, acute phases of the virus, but we don't talk about what happens after quite often. And that's what we're going to have to deal with in the next couple of years from now. What, uh, as she was saying before, it is the effects of COVID lasting after you've been discharged from hospital, after you've tested negative, um, to be more specific, CDC or the Center for Disease Control and Prevention defines long COVID as symptoms persisting after four weeks after initial infection. Some institutions such as NICE, which is a National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, defines it as symptoms lasting for more than 12 weeks And they do these based on their different studies that they do. For the sake of um, most of the studies that we do and what we see locally, I'll keep it at symptoms lasting more than four weeks. And what we notice is that most of our patients will spend two to four weeks in hospital. And when discharged, they'll come back with a two-week review. And that is at National Chest Hospital, where I work. Um, I'm not sure how the other hospitals do it or if they even have follow-up for their COVID-19 patients. But the long COVID symptoms are quite common. And the most common ones we see are the respiratory symptoms, where the patient will present with shortness of breath, the persistent dry cough. The less common ones would be the fatigue. Um, Sometimes we don't see the fatigue prolonging after four weeks. And 
Another common one is short-term memory loss. And this is more so seen in patients who don't even end up in hospital. They just know they had COVID or they were, for the most part, asymptomatic. They were diagnosed, you know, because they were in contact with somebody with COVID and they had to be tested or they were tested for travel or for some other reason and they were found to be positive. But they notice, you know, weeks later after recovery or after their quarantine period, they notice, boy, doc, I have some short-term memory loss. This is what is very, very common. Okay. Um, I just wanted to take a little bit of a pause and just regroup. So is it that you said locally, we define it here as four weeks and more after having COVID? Well, CDC defines it as um, symptoms persisting after four weeks. Um, okay. Some institutions define it after 12. But locally, based on what I see, we will mm-hmm. keep it at symptoms persisting after four weeks okay um i think that is more um specific to us here locally um and that's based on what we have in our clinics with the follow-ups and then you do follow-ups every two weeks the follow-ups are two weeks after discharge right right so that will let them fall into the four week four to six week category yeah so i actually i was doing some light reading because i never want to come on this and I don't work with long COVID, you know, at all. Well, right. maybe except in, or I haven't had any cases or suspected cases of long COVID. Um, right. Um, since since the whole COVID um, pandemic has started. And I did see, just in my reading, um, that uh, the follow-up kind of changes based on both uh, whether or not you were hospitalized or not hospitalized, and then based on your age and comorbidity. So, of course, all of your patients would be hospitalized patients. But I saw where persons who are like, if you were diagnosed as an outpatient, but you're over 60, you have comorbidities, they'll follow you up in about three weeks. But if you don't fit into any of those characteristics, basically follow up is if and when you have the problem. So, I don't know if there is a little bit of a change um, based on age and comorbidity or if once you're hospitalized at my hospital, this is going to be your set review duration or your, yeah. your review time. Okay. You're going along the correct lines. Mm-hmm. In my setting, most of our, pa- well, our patients are hospitalized. And mm-hmm. when we're sending them home, or follow-up date or follow-up appointment of two weeks post-discharge is mm-hmm. given that they are fit enough to come back within two weeks, right? Of course. Um, and we're, the, the changes that we're looking for, we expect to see within two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, further than that time, we expect uh, worse symptoms, if any. Um, before that, you may not see much difference so which is why we have that standard two week for patients who we think would need to come back before two weeks they most likely would not be fit for discharge yeah so that is why we go with that two week um regarding patients who are not hospitalized you're correct in saying if you weren't hospitalized never needed to be hospitalized um you're over 60 with comorbidities the three-week mark is a good one 
Um, for those who don't fit into that category, weren't hospitalized, never really had much symptoms, your follow-up would be based on symptomatology. So as mm-hmm. I was saying, persons who were just diagnosed with COVID-19 um, incidentally and had yeah. no symptoms, no comorbidities, if you find that later on, wow, I'm starting to have shortness of breath if I walk from here to there, which is unusual, or I'm having short-term memory loss, which I did not usually have, or I'm having palpitations, then you start to um, visit your GP and then they'll look into symptoms of long COVID. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting or just a point of information really that because COVID is so new for us that uh, a lot of these protocols or guidelines are literally guidelines and everything is really going to be based on the patient in front of you. And then, you know, sometimes... It's going to be like you see patients who fit this exact criteria over and over again. You kind of form informal protocols based on what you know works or what is most likely to happen. And I mean, internationally, now you're seeing a lot of research coming out um, because COVID is so new. And I mean, I, I don't want to speak on if we're doing any research in Jamaica um, over COVID, but I think if we do and if we are, it'd be very interesting to find out even our own data regarding long COVID. And right, I yes, again, in the hospital setting, but just incidentally, these patients who tend to come back and say, Doc, you know, my shortness of breath is just not going away or the cough isn't going away. What about smell and taste? for those persons ah right the smell and taste usually within the two weeks there it's back um (laughs) strangely enough it's not the patients who end up in hospital who have the prolonged loss of smell or taste it's (laughs) the ones who don't end up in hospital (laughs) so the ones who literally it's your friend outside who got covid and say hey kim i had covid and you know say my smell and taste not back yet these are your friends who never end up in hospital they're just home quarantining they're it's strange to me they're the ones who don't get their smell and taste back quite quick enough <laughs> i know for real like working in the emergency department and you know you ask the question how is your smell how's your taste i the ones who do come for example and you ask them hey how yeah do you have loss of smell do you have loss of taste they'll be like yes but you know they're often treated as outpatients you know it's just um symptom management and quarantine and advice but I'm telling you the persons who come with sets of like 60 you know the chest x-ray looks awful you're like can you smell it it's like yes like yes (laughs) it's why are you asking me this like you know I can't (laughs) breathe right now I find it so strange but you know as you said as you said COVID is so it's so tricky in that, as you said, rightfully so, everything changes with the patient in front of you. And I want to add that everything changes with the different variants that are coming. Because mm-hmm. this wave that we've, we've just, we're just coming out of, the, the whole clinical picture is so different from the wave that we had previously. How is it different? Oh, gosh. The difference is, one, the patients come in a lot sicker initially, but when you look at some of the x-rays, the initial x-ray is not as terrible looking. There's, you know, the pneumonia pattern on x-ray is not as bad as the last wave. Mm -hmm. However, 
when you see them, some, some of the extras are even almost clear. You wonder, why are they so hypoxic? Why are they so sick? But when you see them two weeks after discharge in the clinic, the x-ray is terrible. And you're saying, wait, they're fine. No, they're not hypoxic. They're saying, doctor feels so good. And you look at the x-ray like, what? <laughs> and you know, and no. you look at the x-ray and you say, this x-ray looks worse than when you were admitted on the ward and you were sick and on the verge of death. It, it's almost, it's strange. It's, it's the x-rays now are delayed compared to the clinical picture. That is when it's usually the opposite way. Yes, it's right. So in the, previous, in the previous wave, on the ward, the x-rays are horrible in keeping with how clinically they're ill. And when they come back for the review in two weeks or, you know, it, it's a little better and then you might follow them up in another three weeks and it's fully clear. Right, that was the previous wave, and mm -hmm. this wave or this strain is the opposite. Is is like vice versa, right? That's so you see crazy. them in two weeks, and they are clinically better, but the X-ray looks terrible. And then you're like, oh my gosh, um, you know, and you follow them up for a little longer. You you lean more to doing you doing more CT scans now because you're looking mm -hmm. for because it looks more like okay they'll end up with post-COVID fibrosis. And you're so scared because fibrosis is not where you want to head for your patient, mm -hmm. right? But the patient looks so well. Let's talk about two things. Let's talk about that term, happy hypoxic, and let's just kind of explain to persons what that means and also one of the reasons why no, especially when vaccination rates are so low, COVID numbers are still fairly high, and we're still definitely in community spread white having um, an at-home oxygen um, monitoring device might be important. So that term, happy hypoxic. Okay, so happy hypoxic is, so hypoxia, for those who don't know, is, or hypoxemia is low oxygen levels in the blood. And we monitor this using a pulse oximeter, which is that little device that they put on your finger, usually the index finger, with an infrared light on it, and it will detect, it will show your oxygen level and your pulse, right? Now, when we say that the patients are happy hypoxics, it means that the patient is sitting in front of you, staring you dead in the eye, <laughs> seeming fine, they're not distressed, they don't look like they're out of breath, they're not short of breath, and they're just fine. They feel fine, they look fine. But when you put that pulse oximeter on your finger, the oxygen level is low. Low meaning lower than what you would expect for somebody who is that comfortable. Low meaning the oxygen level can be 80%. No, normal oxygen level is 95 and above. Their oxygen, mm -hmm. you, can, you can accept maybe a 90%, but you'll see a patient come in with an oxygen level of 80% and they're sitting there comfortably staring at you. I've even seen a 65% and they're sitting there looking at you fine. And you're saying, no, man, this cannot be correct. And you get probably another pulse oximeter and put it under your finger just to correlate. And it's the same 65%. And they're looking at you fine. No, outside of COVID, in other respiratory illnesses, if a patient has an oxygen, a normal patient with no suspected underlying lung pathology, with an oxygen level of even 90% or 80 85%, if they're sitting with you in a, with a saturation of 85%, they're going to be distressed. They're going to look out of breath. So <laughs> they're not going to be sitting staring at you like they're fine. 
So this is what is so strange with COVID-19. And this is where we have a challenge because patients will say, oh, but doc, I feel fine. Why need to be in the hospital? I don't have COVID. It's all a lie. You yes. can't tell me I have COVID. I look fine. <laughs> and this is where we have a challenge. I say, sir, ma'am, look at this. This is not supposed to be your normal oxygen level, but I feel fine. And they're going to debate you and they're not going to want to come yeah. into hospital or and even stay in hospital. you can't even show the x-ray because the x-ray looks almost it looks that great. is the thing sometimes the x-rays don't look especially no the x-rays don't look as bad as you'd think it should right sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't and so how do you convince them but here's the problem as a physician you should understand while we know that covid is novel and it's always changing and it's really the luck of the draw with every patient you should just understand however how it may act even mm. though one minute the patient is sitting in front of you with a low saturation and they seem fine, mm-hmm. 15 minutes later, that person could just faint away or get completely distressed and literally die within an hour. That is how COVID acts. That's exactly it because you see patients come in and what it means is that you know, you're comfortable, your saturation is at 80 when it should be closer to 90s and 100s. And what right. it means is that you need to monitor this patient much very more. closely. Um, you have to constantly recheck because it really can happen like that where all of a sudden they're they're basically they're okay until they're not okay. And I think I'm gonna use right. this to segue into back into our discussion about long COVID. And I feel like mm-hmm. maybe, you know, we should probably have a conversation about COVID itself. I'm just so intrigued by long COVID, you know, it's just it just said, wait, what? You know, listen, um, long COVID is going to start a whole new kettle of fish for us as doctors, especially in the pulmonology field. You know how we have an asthma clinic? You're going to have a long COVID clinic. We're having the post-COVID lung diseases now and post-COVID fibrosis. And we're going to, the cardiologists are going to end up with the post-COVID cardiomyopathies and the heart mm-hmm. failures as a result of it. The neurologists are going to end up with all the, 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 the neurological deficits that we're seeing. And the, the psychiatrists are going to end yes. up with all the anxiety and, and anxiety disorders that we end up with. Um, insomnia is, a, is another big one. I saw where PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, my goodness. PTSD a is a thing. big, big one. Yes, it is. Especially for patients who were admitted to hospital. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. It's a very lonely experience in the hospital. It is. So I can just imagine. It is. So we're starting a whole different um, wave of diseases from COVID. Yeah. You know, when you said that, it almost reminded me of polio when polio came out. And um, I know that one of the things that was being said about polio, it's not the fact that polio was killing a lot of persons, why the vaccine was so important, but it was because the sequelae of polio or the the consequences of polio was what persons were trying to avoid. So I I don't know, maybe hopefully the more we talk about long COVID is the more persons will get vaccinated, wear their masks, you know, wash their hands because that is something you get COVID. Sure. You're like, Oh no, I just have flu in quotations for like two weeks and then I'm good. Oh, it's holiday from work anyways, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I would prefer not get COVID than get a mild course of COVID because I don't know what will happen five years from exactly. now. Exactly. 
Exactly, because you know, we talk about fatigue, like fatigue is something serious, especially if you're having to work. Imagine experiencing fatigue for the rest of your life when you are a breadwinner or you're in exactly. school or you're studying. Um, the risk of having coughing or simple I think I, I heard about coughing the the type of asthma where whenever you have the the trigger it's, it comes up more as coughing you know getting these things that you never had right cough variant asthma they don't wheeze all they do is cough 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 and then the post-covid fibrosis if you know about um pulmonary fibrosis especially idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis there's no treatment for that in Jamaica right now right unless you're gonna get a lung transplant <laughs> we have to define the word fibrosis first fibrosis is scarring in in the simplest terms scarring tremendous scarring in the lung well anywhere but we're speaking about the lungs so scarring mm-hmm. in the lung from the virus and this scarring causes the lung to be like in the areas where it is damaged to be um hardened um not as pliable um it it affects the oxygen exchange between the lung and the blood vessels Mm -hmm. there so you have destruction of that area of the lung and that's what affects the oxygenation it's like you have a balloon that has some parts of it melted together and when you try to blow in it it literally Mm -hmm. cannot expand as well and you're right we don't really have treatments out here except what home oxygen if you have extensive idiopathic, idiopathic means you don't have a defined cause, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. If I have a patient with, with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, I feel very sorry for that patient because unless you're going to get a lung transplant, what mm-hmm. do you do? You need fibrinolytics. I mean, these are medications that will break up the fibrosis. And those are extremely, extremely expensive, even overseas so we don't even mm-hmm. have that in jamaica and we can't even imagine how much it would cost so it's almost a progressively worsening disease you need oxygen all the time at home and you just your lungs just wither away until you eventually die now covid can cause fibrosis long term if it is not treated acutely and you know if you have an acute covid infection or the pneumonia that comes with covid if it's not treated correctly at the time of infection it can lead to post-covid fibrosis especially patients who have underlying illnesses like diabetes most commonly they get Mm -hmm. a more severe infection of covid and then they're the ones you mostly see with the post-covid fibrosis and they take a longer time to get better right and then they have to be on steroids which is even worse for diabetes and, and glycemic control or control of the sugar so it's like, a, you know, it's a, it's a spiral, you know. It's a, <laughs> so the best thing is just to avoid COVID. That is it. Avoid COVID, you know. <laughs> and if you have it, get treatment right away. Don't mm-hmm. watch and wait, you know. You want to prevent all the, the negative sequelae that will happen and the long COVID. And fibrosis is what you want to prevent. Fibrosis will prevent you from living on oxygen forever. Mm-hmm. Fibrosis will prevent you from being uncomfortable with shortness of breath forever. That's what we want to prevent. I did not realize that with long COVID, that there was also such a huge risk of having blood clots in the lung or in mm-hmm. other areas of the body. Like I did not realize that uh, that is also something that you have to be very suspicious of when someone comes to you 
who has had COVID and maybe they're having shortness of breath or leg pain or some sort of other symptom, you have to keep at the back of your head that this person may also have a clot. Yes, especially if, and this is where I speak to physicians directly now, not because the patient was never in hospital during their COVID-19 acute phase means, oh, they don't run the risk of getting all these illnesses. Um, I've seen, we've seen patients who had COVID-19. Again, they knew they had it because they had a relative who had it. And they were tested and they were positive and they did their quarantine. Months after they had acute, meaning sudden onset, shortness of breath, you know, sought medical attention, did the necessary investigations, bam, find out they had a clot in the lung and died within Mm -hmm. hours. These are patients who are young, otherwise fit, had a benign course of COVID-19. As I said, were asymptomatic, just did their quarantine and developed, you know, had a clot later on and died, clot in the lung and died. And that is one thing, as I said, as physicians, we must understand all the things that can come with COVID-19, the pathophysiology of the virus, how it acts. Even if the patient is asymptomatic, you have to look out for all the possible things that can happen, right? And don't take anything lightly. If a patient, even if they're asymptomatic during their active phase of disease, say to you, I'm now having shortness of breath on walking from here Mm -hmm. to the bathroom. Do investigations, do a chest x-ray, do a CT scan looking at the pulmonary or the lung arteries. You understand? To see if they're clots. Do simple blood tests like a D-dimer you know, which will help or push you in the direction to say, boy, you may have a clot. You understand? And get them started on blood thinners right away. These are things that we need to keep at the back of our minds to prevent all the negative effects of COVID-19. But if we don't know them, we won't be looking for them. You can't look for what you don't know. Exactly. I want us to talk about one for the average person. When should they seek medical attention and then I want to talk specifically to general practitioners who usually will be seeing the bulk of these patients unless it's really severe um, what they should look for or even what questions they should ask to try and get a diagnosis of lung COVID and you know when to refer so for patients um, specifically when should they be concerned or what should they look for um, to say, nope, I need to go to the doctor, this is not right. Okay. A lay person, if you've had mm-hmm. COVID-19, even before you've recovered, if you're at home during your quarantine, you're fine. You, the first thing, I've always said this, once you get diagnosed with COVID-19, purchase, beg, borrow a pulse oximeter. One of the things to gauge prognosis in COVID-19 is mm-hmm. oxygen levels monitor your oxygen levels at home get the pulse oximeter monitor if your oxygen levels are below 94 percent you need to find the nearest a e accident and emergency find the nearest hospital gp somebody get medical help right that's one thing so you're monitoring your oxygen levels some people say monitor your temperatures i say the temperature you may be asymptomatic and not know what's going on if you've had your course of two weeks quarantine, nothing changed, you were fine, that's good. You've come out of quarantine 
I usually say, even if you're young, fit, and healthy, I would say a month after your quarantine, go mm-hmm. to your GP or somebody who you trust, a GP or a doctor who you trust, to understand COVID. And do just a baseline physical. Let them do just a chest X-ray. If you have no contraindications, too, doing an X-ray at that time. Um, and baseline blood tests. Right, let them check your blood count, check your renal function, and that same test that I said, a D dimer, just to see if you have any increased risk of clotting or just check some inflammatory markers. Things that will say, okay, you still have some levels of inflammation going on in the body that will put you at increased risk of adverse effects or negative effects later on as it relates to COVID. Just do a baseline physical a month later. Outside of that, If you have had COVID-19 and you, for some strange reason, start start developing shortness of breath on doing basic activities like, as I said before, using an example, walking to the bathroom, um, which you never had shortness of breath on doing before. I don't mean doing exercise. I mean just walking to the bathroom. Even exercise. If you know you're a person who usually jog up mountain spring and now you can barely make it up a flight of stairs, that is significant enough for you to say, hmm, before COVID, I could do this. No, I can't do this. You need to have that checked out. That is significant enough. It may be the start of long COVID. It may be the start of a clot in the lung. You don't know. Have it checked out. You don't want to watch and wait until it's too late. The memory, if you realize your memory is just going, simple things that you should be remembering, you're missing you also want to check with your GP. While the memory loss that comes with COVID doesn't last for very long, it can be significant enough to affect your daily activities. And you can be guided with steps to help to cope until it comes back. Um, you know, And it can lead to other underlying things. There are other things as well that can be triggering or causing the memory loss, like chronic fatigue. Chronic fatigue will cause short-term memory loss and may cause short-term memory loss. And the chronic fatigue is another component of long COVID, right? Chronic fatigue, you get the insomnia, the loss of sleep, all of this contributes to memory loss. And that is all a part of the syndrome of long COVID. So these are things you look out for. As I said, the most detrimental are the respiratory I would say palpitations are another common one. If you find that your heart is racing, 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 again, the pulse oximeter, which is the device that you put on your finger to check your oxygen levels, it also reads your pulse. So that can give you an idea if your pulse or heart rate is too high. If you feel your heart, you know, most people say your heart beating outside of your chest and your heart, Jamaica say your heart are flatter. Put the pulse oximeter on your finger and it will give you an idea of what your pulse is. If you are seeing something passing 110 beats per minute, it's not all in your head, right? Seek help from a physician. Prevention is better than cure. That is what I say. As I said, it's not just respiratory issues. You can have cardiovascular issues coming from COVID-19. Exactly. Um, I think that was a really comprehensive uh, guide. Um, I think unless it's very obvious that you need to go to the the hospital, you might not. You might just kind of be like, nah, it might be my head. Mm, it's not really that serious. But, I mean, if you have 
had COVID or even if you feel like you did expose. I know sometimes people might have a little runny nose and they're like, you know, it's just a, I still hear nothing. It's just flu. Um, so they never <laughs> got tested for it or anything. But we have to understand that because of our current circumstances with COVID-19, it is very likely that even if you never had symptoms or your nose was just itching or it was your quote-unquote allergies, there is also a good chance that you may have had COVID-19 and you never know it. And it really exactly. doesn't hurt to have a conversation with your doctor about it. But you know, Samantha, you know, as you said that, you know, what we're running into now, patients are coming in with referrals. Because um, as I said, we, we're a pulmonology center. Mm-hmm. Patients are coming in with referrals saying, oh, they're having shortness of breath for so and so, and so time. And you do, you take the history and you, trying to probe as to why they're having shortness of breath. You do the investigation, you do the x-ray, you do the CT scan, and you know, and then you say, wait, hold on. Did you have COVID-19? Person said, no. Were you ever tested for COVID-19? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you say, wait, but is it possible? Then you have to start ask, asking the question, is it possible that you could have had COVID-19? Were you in a situation where you could have had? And they said, you know, doc, I could have had it. And they start to say, oh, Lord. So this is another thing. You know, we're going to end up with effects of COVID-19, even in patients who are undiagnosed, where they say, boy, could have been. Now we're going to say, mm-hmm. boy, how do we now backtrack? Is there a way where we can test to see if they had and then even for myself, I said, boy, I wish I had done an antibody test before I got vaccinated to see if I had COVID-19 sometime before and did not know because I've never had symptoms suggestive of COVID-19. But I am, as I said, I've been treating COVID-19 patients ever since the first patient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've always wondered, have I ever gotten it and just didn't know or have been asymptomatic? I don't know. I've never had a positive test. But I've never had an antibody test prior to to being vaccinated. So I would like to know because I don't want five years down the line, you know, end up with some lung condition. And I say, boy, was it because I had COVID and I did not know? (laughs) So that's that's one thing we might have to start thinking about later on when we see these um, respiratory illnesses come up. Hmm, Could it have been COVID? Exactly. It's going to be a very important thing to do when we're taking history. Um, asking for vaccine yes. history, asking for um, past um, COVID-19 positive history um, and those things. It's gonna, I feel like it's going to be one of those things that we're stuck with for a very, very long time. And yes. we're just going to have to play it into our history when we're asking a question. So for physicians, you know, and uh, I think this might also be important, not just for general practitioners, but your um, first responders, so persons also in accidents and emergency, and then general practitioners include persons who also work at your health centers as well. Um, what kind of questions should we be asking? What should we be looking for? I mean, we spoke a lot about chest x-rays, D-dimers, and just having, you know, a high index of suspicion a lot of times. So what? What are some, give us, you know, just some guidance for us not. And, oh, and when to refer, I think is important. When not just to refer to, say, A&E, but when to refer to pulmonology as, um, I guess, an outpatient. And I, I, we can touch on 
I, we talked a lot about the pul- the pulmonology part of it, but earlier we did talk about the fact that your heart can be affected as well in terms of um, right, right. congestive heart failure and um, mm-hmm. those persons as well needing to get either ECGs. Yeah, ECGs and echoes. Um, with, with regards to respiratory, the persons who had COVID-19 and they're seeing in the GP offices and the health centers, um, if they're having the persistent shortness of breath, even after the four weeks, um, moving on to eight weeks, I think it's time for you to refer them to the pulmonologist. While you can go ahead and do the, what would be helpful is if you go ahead and do the CT scan or ask them to do the CT scan or the chest X-ray and refer to the pulmonologist. Um, another thing which I left out, how could I, um, is the importance of respiratory um, physiotherapy when um, over recovering from COVID-19. That's such a big, big part of recovery, especially with the shortness of breath. A lot of it has to do with physiotherapy. The physiotherapists play a, such an important role so when they're discharged, most of our patients, who outpatient physiotherapists, they can afford to. They'll have private physiotherapy at home. But it helps them with the breathing. And they have a device called an incentive spirometer, which also helps with the lung, um, the pulmonary function and getting back, getting the lung back to its optimum um, function. Um, so physiotherapy is a big part of it. So refer your patients to physiotherapy. Always refer the patients to physiotherapy. But again, if the patient is coming back with shortness of breath, the persistent nagging shortness of breath, even after the four weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, refer them to a pulmonologist or somebody who has experience in managing COVID-19. Um, you, and I said, do the CT scan if you want to before referring. That's usually helpful. Um, and physiotherapy. Also, you want to look out for the oxygen levels. Even after you've had COVID, monitor the oxygen levels because they may not have shortness of breath or be distressed. But you notice the oxygen levels are not budging above 94. They've been discharged. They seem to have recovered. But oxygen levels are staying on the lower side. They're still 94. They may drop to the 92s. You know, the simplest movement. They walk from here to pick up something, they bend down to tie their shoelace, you know, they get up from standing, the oxygen levels drop to 90, from 94 or 95. That is something that is important. You start referring them to the specialist. So not just about being distressed or short of breath, but the oxygen levels falling way below the target on simple activity. That is something to refer. With regards to the cardiologist, um, most, and I've seen mainly in the younger patients, they have this cardiomegaly or enlargement of the heart acutely when they're in hospital. And usually by the, by the time they come back in two weeks, the heart is back to normal. And it's just this acute or transient cardiomegaly from, is a cardiomyopathy, a viral cardiomyopathy. It usually goes away on its own. Some patients, however, you'll notice that the heart remains enlarged. If you are seeing a patient who you've repeated an x-ray on or you notice that they're complaining that their heart is still racing long after four weeks after as i said we use a four-week mark four weeks after they're still having palpitations you should refer them to do an echocardiogram ecg echocardiogram 
and the echocardiogram gives you more detail as to the structure of the heart and refer them to a cardiologist as needed. So you should expect the heart returning to the normal size post the acute stage of the disease. But if it is persisting, um, then you should refer them to cardiologists, especially now if the enlarged heart is now causing them to be short of breath. So it's causing dyspnea. Or if they're starting to feel like if they lie flat, they can't breathe, so they need to be up on two, three pillows, that is significant. So that is the start of heart failure. So that is where their acute cardiac effects of COVID are prolonging then you need to refer them to a cardiologist. So these are two of the things you look out for in the primary care setting or, you know, as a GP to know when to refer. Yes. Um, just to touch on neurology and um, persons who may have mental health issues from COVID. For the neurology aspect of it, I know that if you're having more focal issues, you know, that's when you should do a CT scan of the brain and refer brain, as yes. needed as well. And then, of course, on mental health issues, you want to refer to whatever mental health services um, the person may be able to afford. So whether in right. the public system or um, privately. Um, there are, of course, I mean, it's going to be down to the general practitioners to be able to know what they can manage and what they can't. But I think it's really important to to if your patient comes in just to make sure that they feel like their complaint is valid because yes I mean when you're going in with something like doc I'm just tired like I cannot explain it I'm just tired or all of a sudden you you know you see someone that's 22 years old they can't they're having shortness of breath because they can't walk to the bathroom you know when they're walking to the bathroom or something that these especially know because of COVID are literally going to be complaints that we might see more of and they're valid complaints. And there are other guidelines out there to show you how you can actually treat um, some of the things that your patients may complain of. So the, the fatigue, the brain fog. I, even, I right. even saw something I learned about today that even the issues with smell can be treated by having olfactory training I think they said if it oh, goes really? beyond a certain, <laughs> yeah, if, if it goes That's beyond amazing. a certain, if it goes beyond a certain time period, you can actually refer them to ENT, the Air, Nose, and Throat Doctor, and they can do oh. um olfactory training with essential oils. And I was like, wait, what? And I mean, they were talking about studies from 2013, um, talking about you know, um, helping persons who have lost their smell from viral infections. So COVID is not the right. only virus that has affected um your sense of smell and taste. And I was, I was, I was, I had to tweet about it. I was like, wait, what? This exists on factory training. You can teach. We need to, we need, we need to ask the snot doctor and all these ENT no, no, doctors no. about this. Listen, <laughs> listen, listen. Kia responded to my tweet not too long ago and said yes when I said that it actually exists. And she just responds yes. And I mean, I think I should post the video in my show notes. It's very, very medical. It's very, very technical. So if you're wow. interested in like... Um, this is to our listeners. If you're interested in medicine and looking up words, or if you are a med 
student or a nurse or a doctor, any type of physician or healthcare worker, um, it's a it's a really great video to watch by Medcan um, about their about long COVID. I will link it, but they had the studies and they linked the studies and everything. And then I wanted to definitely, definitely touch on the role of our physiotherapists. I the last podcast yes, I did. Yes, spoke, they I are such a big them. part of it. And nobody not pick them up. I don't understand. They are the silent no, warriors. Like, I mean, they are such a big part of acute COVID management in the hospital. Yes, like, they work hand in hand with the doctors, hand exactly. in hand, and. I think us as healthcare workers, we know how important they are, but I just want, it's like, I want the people in the public to know. They don't that know. They don't they know. They are huge. The public exactly. does not know. Like, and even, as I said, even after the patient is discharged, they must continue physiotherapy. Most of them are continuing physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. And if you ask any patient who was in the hospital, they'll tell you about their chalice, you know, <laughs> putting quotations, chalice is the incentive <laughs> spirometer that they're always blowing into. They say, boy, you know, I'm at the hospital and I have a chalice. It's not a chalice, guys. <laughs> it's an incentive spirometer. They're blowing every day and it helps them to get their lung back to tip-top shape. And even when they get home, they still use it every day and they come every day and do physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's such a big part of it. And it helps them to control their breathing and yep. it helps to control the anxiety as well because when they get mm-hmm. anxious, then they get short of breath and it helps with a lot of the anxiety that comes with COVID-19 and post-COVID-19. During this pandemic, physiotherapists have just been amazing. They, yes, they I, I just want, I really want people in the public to just realize how much work they're doing and how much good they're doing during this pandemic and then especially because um i mean even as a doctor you know we, we might take bloods we might just to the patient we examine them but physiotherapists it's a very hands-on practice it and is, they have to be it very is. close to the patient so they're yes. really putting themselves at such a high risk as well of course because they're the ones then they're flipping the person back and forth exactly. and beating up the chest exactly they're doing even so the much patients, is in ICU and not awake, they're still getting physiotherapy. So exactly. they still have they're in contact with all patients. And I think this is a great place to end this conversation. Just digging up physiotherapists. I have to share this with a physiotherapist yes. friends and be like, listen, yes, guys, yes, you yes. guys are so appreciated. Kim, Dr. Kim, thank you so much yes. for being a part You're of welcome. this conversation. I it was kind of I think it was interesting. It was like, all over the place, but I think there was a lot to learn both for the layperson and for physicians. I think this was a great episode. I, re- I want you to end with like your last words. Just talk to us a little bit about um, what you think we can do to help improve the situation. And then I just want you to end off by telling us how we can contact you and just thank you so much for being a part of this conversation today with me. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. I'm always so excited to share clinical knowledge because one of my passions is always to help people to take control of their health. Like I'm not one of those people who think we should just sit down as doctors and healthcare workers and spit things at you and tell you what to do. I want to teach you how to help you to get your health in control. 
So if yes. you are ready to take control of your health, you can reach out to me. My email address is drknjohnson at gmail.com. And you can either reach me at Kim Johnson um, on Twitter. That's at K-Y-M Johnson. On Twitter, DM me. That's at me. I am always willing to talk. My DMs are open, I think. You can message me about issues that you have. Or if you want to set up an appointment, go ahead. I'm always willing to talk. Do not message me at 12 o'clock and expect me to message respond at midnight. No, I'll be sleeping. I do sleep, guys. But I'm always willing to help you guys to weather the storm of COVID-19. Get vaccinated if you haven't as yet. If you want more information on vaccinations, I'm also willing to talk about that. We're not forcing you to. We just want you to take control of your health. Guys, I'm always here. So again, email drknjohnson at gmail.com and message or tag me on Twitter at Kim Johnson, K-Y-M Johnson. Mm-hmm. So the doctor spell out or is D-R? D-R. D-R-K-N Johnson. I will be putting all of these in to the show notes so you'll all have that contact information below plus some of the other things that we have spoken about. Um, thank you again so much for being a part of this discussion. And thank you for listening um, to this podcast. I really hope you guys learned. I really get, I hope you guys got motivated to just wash your hands, social distance, wear your mask, and get vaccinated. We have our permanent vaccination sites, lots of health centers doing vaccinations. I think some private practices are also doing vaccinations right now um i really hope that our children five and up will be able to get pfizer as soon as possible in jamaica it has started in the states already please 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 get vaccinated and if we do have booster shots coming up please go and get your booster shots i know that in the states some persons have already gotten their pfizer booster shots so if you want to contact me if you want to reach out to me you are free to do so, super easy. You can message me on any of my social media at the layman's dr. That's Instagram and Twitter. You can send me an email at the layman's doctor at gmail.com, all spelled out. And you can also message me through my website, www.thelaymansdoctor, all spelled out, dot com. Thank you so much for listening and until next time thank you again Kim, for being a part of this conversation 